You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. be with you. Um, if you are new with us or you haven't been with us in a while, first of all, my name is John. I'm one of the other pastors here. I like to consider myself the, the better looking pastor. Chris would also consider that about himself, but we all know who's telling the truth, okay? Uh, if you haven't, though, been with us in a while, we have been using the Gospel of John for the last few weeks um, in an attempt to better understand who Jesus is and at the same time better understand what Jesus has to offer, why Jesus matters, why Jesus is worth following, why Jesus is worth giving our lives over to. And so over this journey, as we've kind of worked our way through John's gospel, we've seen Jesus do and say some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, think about some of the crazy stuff we've seen him do. He took a ton of water and instantaneously turned it into wine. And then, as we see, he's able to heal a kid from 20 miles away with nothing more than his word, nothing more than saying, yeah, your kid's going to live, and then he just you know, gets better. That's pretty epic. But he doesn't stop there, because as we moved into chapter 6, we saw Jesus take a couple fish sandwiches and ended up feeding somewhere close to 20,000 people with a trip to McDonald's. I mean, that's crazy. But he wasn't done there. Do you remember what happened after that? Just to top it off, because he could, just to say, you know, you thought that was epic, here it is. Afterwards, he decides, you know what, I'm going to go walk it out. And so he takes a nice little stroll on the water, like literally walks on water. Jesus is doing some crazy stuff in the Gospel of John, but also Jesus says some crazy stuff. I mean, Jesus has made some incredibly bold statements. I mean, one of the earliest ones we looked at was Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah, the long-awaited hero of Israel, the one people had longed for for generations. Jesus goes, yeah, I am that guy. And then, as we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus didn't stop there because he said more than that, "Mm, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna flip religion on its head. See, every other religion, every other religion has made it about what you do about your efforts. But Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. Flip it. It's not about you. It's about me. If you want to truly live, if you want to experience all that God has for you, you got to give up trying and instead surrender to me. Let me get inside you and begin to shape you. What? That's crazy. And then as we saw last week, he says that he alone is the only one who can truly satisfy the deepest desires of our life, that he alone is the only one who can lead us as God would lead us. And the reason he alone can do those two things is because he alone is God in the flesh. I mean, just consider that. Those are some incredible things. Now, if you are familiar with the other Gospels, you know it's around this time in the Gospels that Jesus has a really interesting conversation with his disciples. And in this conversation, he asks them a question that becomes one of the most important questions in all of Scripture. And in fact, it's not the first question he asks, but what happened is this. The disciples, they're on their way, probably on their way to the feast that Jesus is currently at when he's saying this. And on their way to this feast, Jesus asks them two questions. He says, first, here you go. 
what's the buzz about me? All right, boys. We've been doing ministry together for about two years. You know, everybody's kind of got an opinion on me. Who do people say that I am? This is his first question to the disciples. And as we've seen, as we've kind of been reading through this, there's a ton of confusion about him. As we saw last week, some people are convinced Jesus is a demon-possessed heretic. I mean, those are the, the, the one end of the spectrum. The disciples don't actually tell Jesus that when he asks them this question. Instead, they say only the nice things. They say, well, you know, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people, they just think you're one of the great prophets. And Jesus goes, okay, that's nice. Great, everybody else has an opinion about me. All right, boys, but here it is. Two years. You've watched me say, you've watched me do some pretty incredible things. Who do you say that I am? Big, bold question. And in fact, this question, as I said, is one of the most important questions in all of Scripture because at the end of the day, it's a question every single one of us has to answer. At the end of the day, when we come to the end of our life, everyone has to get to a point where we're able to take a stand. And we have to declare, who do we say Jesus is? Are we for him? Are we against him? Who do you say that he is? Now, in John's gospel, we don't actually have that same conversation recorded. John doesn't give us that, that conversation on their way to the festival. But that question of who do you say that I am is actually still at the heart of the passage we're going to read today. It's at the heart of a debate between an incredibly religious man, or let me, a fervent believer, and his religious persecutors. And so that's the story we're going to look at today. And so I invite you at this time, open up with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, um, if you're confused, that comes after John chapter 8. I just want to clarify that. It is on page 731 in your pew Bibles. You can also pull it up on the app. We will throw it on the screen, but I would encourage you to definitely have it open as we're going to read almost the entire chapter today. John chapter 9. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little background. Okay, let's set the scene a little bit for what we're going to see today. John, uh, Jesus, if you remember, is at this thing called the Feast of Tabernacles. We learned this at the beginning of chapter 7. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of the great feasts of Israel. And as we talked about last week, the easiest way to understand it is just think Thanksgiving on steroids. Okay? There are daily parades. There's an awesome light show every single night, every night. I kid you not, every night, men come out with giant, like, torches and start dancing in the streets. That is my idea of Thanksgiving. I would love that. Okay, so that's this holiday. And at this holiday, if you remember, in fact, on the last and greatest day, Jesus stands up and makes three bold declarations. The first, as I said, is he said that he alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our life. Second, he alone can guide us into all truth. He can tell us where God wants us to go and how he wants us to live. And the reason that he alone can do that is because he alone, above all else, is he alone is God. Well, that last one, as we looked at last week, that last little statement that he alone is God, that didn't sit so well with his audience. And they end up picking up rocks and they start chasing him down in an attempt to kill him. Remember this? Well, we're told that Jesus somehow was able to slip out of the crowd unharmed because his time had not yet come. We'll talk about that in a little later. But on his way out, as him and his disciples have somehow evaded this crowd that was out to kill him, they come across a man. 
and we're told that this man was born blind. How, he was, how they know he was born blind, we're not really sure. Apparently, it's just common knowledge that this was a guy that was born blind. And when the disciples see him, they ask Jesus a question. And it's this question that sets up the entire story today. So again, I'm in John chapter 9. I'm going to be reading starting in verse 1. We'll throw it on the screen for you. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, if you look at this question, it's, it's kind of odd to us, right? Like when we see somebody suffering, our natural inclination is not to go, well, that guy made a mistake or somebody else in his life made a mistake. That's not the way we typically think. But in ancient Jewish thought, this was absolutely how everybody thought. See, for them, there was this intimate connection between sin and suffering. All suffering in the world was due to one sin. And before you write them off, they are actually right. See, if you go back all the way to the beginning of Genesis, had Adam and Eve never sinned in the first place, had sin never entered the picture and corrupted God's creation, this man would have never been born blind. So they're right. There is some link to the suffering we experience on a regular basis and sin. But what they do that goes a little too far beyond the scope of Scripture is they begin to look at a person's specific suffering and say, well, clearly there must be a sin that we can identify as to why that man is suffering. See, and when you do that, you begin to go way beyond the bounds of Scripture because you cannot, according to Scripture, look at a person's life and be able to go, well, you're clearly suffering because of this sin. In fact, it's completely contrary to much of what we reveal in the Old Testament, especially. Remember that book of Job? Job is an incredibly righteous man. Job is completely innocent in all that he does, and yet Job suffers immensely. There is no obvious link then to a person's specific sins and the suffering that they experience. And that's essentially what Jesus says here in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened, so that the works of God might be displayed in him, for as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. So Jesus is clear. This man is not suffering because of his sin or the sin of his parents. You can't directly link it to them. So why is he suffering? What is the reason? Well, if you read this verse, doesn't it kind of sound like the reason this guy is suffering is because God inflicted him with this suffering in order to later show his glory? I mean, just look at the way, but this happened. This man is suffering from this blindness so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, the truth is, if we go down that rabbit hole, we're opening this entire can of worms that is unnecessary for this passage. Okay, We don't have to because, in fact, I think it's just a bad translation. And the reason I can make that declaration is, remember, there's a couple things here at play. Do you remember when John wrote this gospel, he didn't write in English. He wrote it in Greek. And any of you who have ever tried to translate from one language to another know that whenever you translate, you have to make a number of interpretive decisions, right? You can move things around in the sentence to make it a little smoother, but you also often add filler words. And the reason you add filler words is because it doesn't always make sense when you have a wooden literal translation. We need to smooth it out a little. Well, that's actually what happened here. This phrase, this happened, isn't in the Greek. I looked it up. It's not in there. 
It's, it's totally not there. The second thing is this. So often when we read the Bible, we have to remember that the verses, those weren't original to the text either. Those were added much later. And so when John is writing, there's no reason for us to see verses 3 and 4 as separate thoughts or separate sentences. In fact, there was no punctuation even when John wrote. And so if you remove the filler phrase, and you see verses 3 and 4 as one complete sentence, you actually get this, and I think this literal translation is a little clearer. Jesus is saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but so that the works of God might be displayed in his life, we must do the work of him who sent me while it is still day. This is actually a literal translation of what the Greek says, and honestly, I think this makes a little more sense. Because what he's getting at is this. Jesus is making it very clear. This man is not suffering as some reason for sin. We can't say that. The only thing Jesus does make clear is, while I don't know what this man, why this man is suffering, I feel an urgent need to do something about it while I am still in the world. And that's what he gets at in the next part of this verses too, if you look at this. When he says, night is coming. And when night comes, no one will be able to work. For while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. While I am here, I need to do something about this man's suffering, so I'm going to act to do something. And then he does something a little weird. After this, he spit on the ground, made some mud pies with his saliva, and then put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, and this word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing again. Yeah, Jesus spit on the ground, made a mud pie, and rubbed it on a guy's eyes. Doesn't stop there. He then said, I want you to go walk across town with this mud pie spit thing on your eyes, get to this pool, wash your eyes, and then, then you'll be all right. Okay, what, what is up with the spit thing? I will confess to you, I spent an inordinate amount of time looking into the spit thing this week. Way too much time. I, I, it, it's, it's insane how much you just paid me to go look up the spit thing, okay? And the short answer is, we have no idea. We have no idea what's up with the spit thing. There, are, there is no consensus. Everybody has an opinion on the matter, but nobody agrees as to what the reason is. The only thing everybody does agree on is this. One day the guy was blind, the next he encountered Jesus, and now he can see. It's, it's that simple. This is clearly a miracle. No one in all of history was ever recorded as healing a man born blind from birth. I mean, this is incredible. This is miraculous. Now, the point, or the, the story at this point takes like a, a pivot. In fact, Jesus at this point kind of fades to the background while this once blind man becomes center stage. First, this blind man is going to encounter his neighbors. Verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the guy who used to sit down and beg? And some claimed, yeah, that's him. Others said, no, he only looks like the guy. But the man himself said, no, no, I, I am the guy. I am the man. And so they asked him, well, how were your eyes opened? He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And when I went and I washed my face, I could see. 
I don't know what else to tell you. That's what happened. Well, where is this guy? Where is this man? He said, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the answers. I can't tell you. And so they brought the man to the Pharisees who had been blind. Now, normally, whenever the Pharisees show up in a story, you naturally read that as the bad guys, right? Because in the story, they're the bad guys. But we need to understand, when these neighbors of the blind man turn the guy into the Pharisees, they're not like handing him over to the cops. They're just trying to make sense of this miracle that they've seen. See, for them, they understand only God could perform such an incredible thing. And so in an effort to make sense of what it is that's happening, they hand him over to the religious rulers and say, hey, help us understand what's going on. They had no idea how the religious rulers were going to, were going to respond to this. So we can't ascribe like malicious intent to the neighbors. They were just trying to do their best to understand it. Unfortunately, the Pharisees are the bad guys. Verse 14, now the day on which Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And the man said, well, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, see, this man cannot be from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others go, how can a sinner perform such signs? And they went back and forth on this. They were divided on this. Okay, so funny story. Um, as many of you know, I, I get to teach Bible on our middle school campus. I teach 6th, 7th, and 8th grade Bible. And in our 7th grade Bible class, we spend the entire year looking at the Gospels, trying to understand who Jesus is. And a couple weeks ago, we were reading through this story. And when I got to the point where I talked about how the Pharisees were starting to get mad at Jesus about the whole... Um, the Sabbath healing thing, one of the girls in the class went, oh, come on, this again? It was great. And the reason is, if you've ever read the Gospels, you have to appreciate this. Jesus has a knack for this. He loves pushing the Pharisees' button. And the biggest button he continues to run up and push again and again and again and again is this whole healing on the Sabbath thing. Every time he does this, it just sends them ballistic. And Jesus, I just imagine, as I see him doing this, just has this little smirk on his face of, oh, you have no idea what's going to happen. Go ahead, go wash yourself. Let's just see what happens. He just takes incredible delight in this. And the reason this is not Jesus actually breaking Sabbath law is this. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can't rub your mud on a man's eyes and have them go wash in a pool. That's not in the Bible. And so you go, well, what rule is he make breaking? He's breaking their made-up rules. See, the Pharisees had all these types of rules to try and understand how to best follow the law, how so they could make sure that they were never outside of God's will. They always wanted to follow it to the T. Well, in order to do it, they made up all sorts of crazy made-up rules. What Jesus constantly does is he loves to break their made-up rules because they're not from God, and he just loves to rub it in their face. Well, this doesn't always go over so well. And as you can see, this split the room. Some are so hung up on their, their anger about, well, he broke our rules. And others are like, well, I mean, is he really breaking the rules? I mean, this guy's got to be from God. Eventually, while they're debating among themselves, somebody has the bright idea of, well, why don't we ask the guy who actually got healed? Why don't we ask the one person in the room who encountered him? And as they turn and ask Jesus this question, 
This is, this is the big question. This is the question at the heart of this entire passage. Who do you say that he is? Look at what he says. Verse 17. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. It was your eyes he opened. And so another way of putting it is this. Look, dude, you're the only person who's encountered him. You're the only person that was affected by him. We're just speculating here. What do you have to say on the matter? Who do you say that he is? But I want you to notice, as he makes this statement, or as they ask this question, they're naturally forcing the man into one of two camps. Do you catch this? Either he is in agreement that this man is from God, right? Or he's in the camp that says, no, no, Jesus is not from God. He can't possibly be from God. He's forced to make a decision. Are you for God or are you against God? Are you for Jesus or are you with us? Well, the guy has no problem answering. And he just says this. He replied, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. I don't know much. I don't know everything. I'm not as learned and as scholarly as you guys, but here's where I'm going with. Uh, that guy was sent from God. That's my, my end statement. He was sent from God. I don't know how else to explain it. I'm with him. I'm in his camp. I'm going with the, the, God, the God thing, the prophet thing. Well, the Pharisees, again, they're not done. That wasn't good enough evidence for them. But now, at this point, they want to make sure they get all the details of the case laid out in front of them. They're not ready to just be like, all right, well, let's move on. No, no, they want to make sure they have the basic facts covered. And so the first thing they need to figure out is, is this guy actually the blind man, or is he just an impersonator? I have my glasses on, sorry. Is he just an impersonator? And so they call in the man's parents, verse 18. They still did not believe that he had been born blind and had received sight until they sent for the man's parents. And so they asked him, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? Well, at this point, his parents are about to throw him under the bus. So get ready for this. They go, yeah, we know he is our son. The parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, well, I'm not willing to make that statement. Ask him, though. He's of age. He will speak for himself. In other words, bam, bam, here comes the guy. Woo <laughs> if you didn't understand what that is, that was the parents picking up the son, throwing him under the bus, and the I need to work on my sound effects, but that was where we were going in the midst of that. Thanks. I love that, Isaac. Thank you. That was so good. Isaac was with me there. Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So they do verify. Yeah, yeah, that's our kid. Yeah, yeah, he was born blind. But we're not willing to make a statement beyond that. And in fact, we are totally willing to sacrifice our own child have at him. We're going to save our own skin. Good parenting. Verse 24. So the Pharisees then, then pivot back and they go, all right, fine, we'll reinterrogate the guy. A second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. And they said, give glory to God. Tell the truth. Put your right hand in the air. Put your other hand on the Bible. Swear it before God. And then they shift. For we know this man is a sinner. What? When did that fact get established? Do you remember? They had just said they were split on the decision. Some were convinced that he was a sinner, but some were not. 
But now, everybody's convinced Jesus is a sinner. They know it deep down. They just know it. They have this all figured out. Verse 25, but the man replied, well, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. That's, that's your business. You're the religious leaders. This is all I got. One thing I do know, I was blind. <laughs> now I see. Again, I'm not a fancy, sophisticated theologian like you guys. I don't know all the answers. I never saw Jesus' resume. I don't know his history. I've never followed him around. All I know is this. I was blind. Now I see. That's it. I don't know what else to tell you. Well, they're not done. Verse 26, they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How how did he open your eyes? I imagine this is the very first time while he's able to see, he then rolls his eyes and gets to experience that. (laughs) Like, come on, guys, seriously, I just went over this with you. He answers, I already told you and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Oh, I know. Do you want to be his disciples too? (laughs) Then this just set him over the edge. Then they hurled insults at him. You are this fellow's disciple? We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but for this fellow, we don't even know where he came from. At this, the, the, the uneducated blind man responds with one of the most insightful, brilliant statements. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he came from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that, a pers- that God does not listen to sinners. He only listens to godly people who do his will. Nobody has ever heard of a man having his blind, or nobody has ever heard of the opening of eyes of a man born blind. Therefore, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Again, I may not be the most sophisticated person in the room. I may not have all the answers. I don't have the fancy theological degree. I don't know everything there is to know about God and his ways. I don't even know everything there is to know about this Jesus guy. But this I do know. God only listens to godly people. This was clearly an act of God. This man is from God. At the end of the day, I was blind. Now I see. At the end of the day, I'm going with the guy that brought me to this dance. I'm going to the guy that made me able to see. I don't know about anything else, but I'm clinging to that. I don't know. I don't need to have all the answers. I don't need life completely worked out for me. I'm just going with what I've seen so far. And what I've seen so far is enough for me to go, I'm with that guy. The rest of you, yeah, you're great. I mean, sure, you've got fancy education and degrees and all sorts of crazy stuff. That's, that's lovely. But he opened my eyes. I'm clinging on to him, and we're just going to go from there. Well, this declaration or this stance was very offensive, apparently, to them. And so they, they respond like this, verse 34. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They were sick of him. They were tired of this debate. They had already made up their opinion. Their conclusion was that whatever it is this man was espousing about Jesus was completely counter to everything they understood. It was completely opposite of their worldview. It didn't fit their system. And so they rejected outright. They kicked the man out. They labeled the man a sinner and they dismiss him. This statement, by the way, that they label the man a sinner just again shows their lack of insight because just at the top of this story, who declares this man to not be a sinner? 
Jesus. Jesus is openly declared, and we already have, Jesus got a little more credibility than these guys so far. They kick him out. Soon after this, though, Jesus finds the man, and this is what happens, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man asked, Who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. I have seen so much. I've only seen this much, but uh, I want to see more. Jesus said, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And then he fell down at his feet and he worshiped him. That word worship literally means to just lay on the floor in front of somebody. It's an act of complete submission. I'm handing my life over to you. I will follow you. I will do as you say. You are my king. You are my God. You are my Lord. You are the one who's going to lead me. I'm going to do whatever it is that you want. I will follow you. After this, Jesus provides his own commentary on the events of chapter 9. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Read that again. For the judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. I mean, clearly this is just brilliant wordplay, right? Right? And Jesus is just, Jesus is the master of this because he takes those who are able to literally see and he says, those who can literally see think they have all the answers. They think they have life all figured out. They have it all tied up in this pretty little bow. They got their own little system. But the truth is, they're completely blind to the reality in front of their face. Whereas on the other side, you have this man who literally can't see, who is desperate for help, and is therefore willing to put his faith, willing to put his trust in the hands of another person. Because he admits, I don't have anything. I don't have life figured out. I just need help. And so when Jesus comes along, he has no problem handing it over to him. And not only then is he able to literally see, but Jesus makes it clear he's seeing the whole picture. He's seeing more clearly than these people who think they are capable of seeing. And so when this man encounters Jesus, he falls down, he submits to him, he worships at his feet, he surrenders. The thing is, in the midst of this, this guy didn't have all the answers. I want you to make sure you catch this. This believer is not a polished theologian. This guy didn't know what Jesus was for or against. This guy had no clue how Jesus was ever going to shape his life or direct him or where Jesus was going to lead him or what was going to happen now. He didn't know anything. How could he? He had the briefest of encounters with Jesus. I mean, maybe they talked about something while Jesus was making mud pies, but there's no way he knew everything. He's also probably uneducated. He wouldn't have gone to formal school because they wouldn't have had any Braille-type system for him. He was an outcast of society, the lowest of the low, the most uneducated person in all of the room. But he clings to the one thing he does know, that prior to his encounter with Jesus, his life was bleaker. So despite his lack of knowledge, He does the only thing that makes sense. He takes the little thing that he knows to be true of Jesus and he puts it into practice. I was blind, but now I can see. 
See, in many respects, this man is the model disciple. What this man does is he doesn't see everything, but what he does see is enough. And he trusts that if he can see only this much now, as he continues to follow Jesus, he will continue to see more. He doesn't need to have all the answers before he commits. He doesn't need to know the end game. He doesn't need to have everything completely figured out. He just goes, what you got, that's enough. I'm going to start from there. And he begins his walk of faith, his journey of following Jesus. It's easy to see this miracle as simply being about this one guy's story. But as we've seen throughout the entire Gospel of John, the miracles John chose were intended to be used as signs. And signs always point to something beyond themselves. If you just get stopped at the sign, you're missing the whole point. And so what we see in this is this man, this story isn't just about this one man. Rather, this man is representational of all of humanity. This man represents all of us. See, at the end of the day, none of us clearly see the world as it is. None of us have all the answers. None of us have life completely figured out. In many respects, we are blind to many of the realities of life. The prophets in the Old Testament, they had a phrase for this. The prophets in the Old Testament, they said, we were constantly seeing. This is how they describe the human condition. Constantly seeing, but never perceiving. Constantly hearing, but never understanding. In other words, we were always exposed to the truth, but we were incapable of grasping it. Another image they use is they they talk about us being sheep who are led astray, sheep who wander aimlessly. And in fact, Jesus, if you continue reading in this narrative as it, it continues into chapter 10, Jesus picks up on this theme. Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd who leads the sheep. The sheep hear his voice. They respond to him. They follow him. They do as he says. And the thing is this. You can't just respond once. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but following is an ongoing perpetual action. It's not something you just do once and be like, well, good, I did that, I'm good. But this is so counter sometimes to the way we talk about what it means to be a Christian. So often we talk about when we, this whole Christian thing as this one-time declaration of faith. We pray the prayer, we get our get-out-of-hell-free card, and then we go live our life however we want until we feel real bad, and then we go back to church to confess where we're reminded, no, no, you got your get-out-of-hell-free card, whoo, and then I go back and live my life however I want. But that's the complete opposite of what being a Christian is all about. That's not the life that Jesus has come to offer us. The life that Jesus comes to offer us is one that says, I want to transform you today. The life I offer you isn't just about what happens when you die. It's not just about what happens when you come to your grave and we have to wonder, well, is that person in heaven or hell or whatever? That's not the eternal life that Jesus is talking about. It's a part of it. It's a part of the story, but the life that Jesus continues to offer throughout the Gospel of John is a life, is a reality to be experienced today. And he says, if you want to truly experience the life that God created you for, if you want to flourish, if you look at your life and you go, man, why is there a disconnect between the life that I live now 
And that life I know, I long for. How do I get there? Jesus goes, I'll tell you exactly how to get there. It requires a daily commitment to follow me, to hear my voice, to see and be led as I inform your decisions. In other words, if you want to truly understand this Christian thing, if you're trying to make sense of it, it's actually quite simple. To be a Christian, all it requires is a daily admittance that you don't know what you're doing. That apart from Jesus, you are blind. That apart from Jesus, when you wander from your shepherd, you're no better than that sheep wandering aimlessly in the city, stumbling off cliffs and biting people's ankles. I mean, think about this. When we wander from God, when we determine how to live our lives, when we think about, well, if I could just do this way, that way, if everybody else worked my ways, that's when we cause problems. The moments we wander from the Lord, the moments when we determine what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, that's the moments we hurt ourselves. That's the moments we hurt the people we love the most. When we play God, when we think as wandering sheep that we have life all figured out. I don't know about you, I'm so tired of being hurt in life. And I'm so tired of hurting those I love. I'm so tired of stumbling around aimless. I'm so tired of hurting myself as I blindly run into walls. I don't want to be blind anymore. I don't want to be an aimless sheep anymore. I want to live well. So again, it's incredibly simple. You have to admit you don't know what you're doing and you have to fix your eyes on Jesus. You have to admit daily, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Lord, I don't know how to handle my finances. Lord, I don't know how to spend my free time. Lord, I don't know how to engage this person. Lord, I don't know what I should be looking out on the internet. Lord, I don't know this, that, the other thing. When I'm in charge, all I do is hurt people. Lord, guide me. And it's about looking to Jesus. And and here's what I mean by this. It's about taking those little things that you see, the little bits that you know. You don't have to be an expert theologian. You don't have to overcomplicate this entire thing. Being a Christian is simple. But that doesn't make it easy. Because while it's simple to say all you have to do is deny yourself and look to Jesus and follow him, that goes against our very human nature. We, by default, constantly try and claw back our authority and our independence, thinking we know best. It is one of the most difficult things to continue to surrender to Jesus. And if you think I'm making this up, I'll just tell you, do you remember that story I told you at the very beginning where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Do you remember how that story plays out? Do you ever think about this? Peter chimes in, and Peter goes, hey, you're the Messiah. And Jesus goes, ding, 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 gold star for you, Peter. I'm going to put that right on your chest. Good job. And Peter just walks around like this. Hey, guys, see the gold star? It's pretty great. Pretty great. After this, though, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples, okay, you're right, I'm the Messiah, but that means I actually have to suffer and die. And Peter, all puffed up with his chest, goes, no, no, Jesus, come here. Let me tell you, that's not what the Messiah does. The Messiah, he doesn't suffer and die. You're you're wrong about this. What does Jesus do next? Get behind me, Satan. That's a bold statement, right? Jesus goes, no, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. 
Then Jesus follows with this statement. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must daily pick up their cross, deny themselves, and follow me. It's again the, the beautiful essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's incredibly simple. Deny yourself. Well, well, that's, that's actually a lot harder than it, than it sounds. You mean in everything, the way I want to act, the way I want to engage other people, the way I want to handle my fine, everything, I got to hand that over? Yeah. Instead of doing the things that you want to do, you have to deny yourself. You have to pick up your cross and you have to follow me. You have to do as I would do. You have to go where I am telling you to go. You have to engage people as I am telling you to engage people. When you do that, that's how you live. That's how you experience this flourishing good life. Well, how do we do that? Again, you take the small little bit that you see. And you just say, all right, I'm going to take that little bit. I don't know everything, but I know this. And you begin to work from there. You go, Lord, this is how I see right now. I'm going to just go from there, and I'm going to trust that as we continue to follow you, as I continue to read your word, as I continue to pray, as I continue to hear from you, as I continue to listen to you, you're going to continue to make things a little more clear. But I'm going to take this small little bit I know. And if for you right now that is just Jesus loves you, start there that he gave himself for you so that you are free of sin, start there. Stop beating yourself up. Start wallowing in your own self-flagellation, or I don't even think that's a word. I totally made that up. It was something like a word. Stop beating yourself up. You are a forgiven child of God. Just start there. If for you, you know, you know what, the one thing Jesus continues to call me to do is to love other people as he has loved me, great, start there. And as you engage every relationship in your life, just start there. Lord, what does it look like to love this person as I have loved you? Just start there. Take this small amount that you can see. Allow that to focus your attention. And walk in that and just see what happens. That's the life that Jesus is offering. That's what this model, or that's what this man models for us today. Church, let's live. But first, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we are in love with your son. Lord, we declare that he is so good. At the same time, we confess that we are like sheep who have gone astray. We love to think we have life completely figured out. We love to think we got everything handled. But the truth is, we don't know what we're doing. And we're so tired of hurting other people. We're so tired of hurting ourselves. Lord, fix our eyes on you. Lord, may we be so consumed with your son and his ways and his love for us and what it is that he has to say or speak over us that the only thing that we begin to think about is what it is that he offers us, what it is that he tells us. Lord, continue to change the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act for your glory. In Jesus' name.